In the 1960s and 1970s, people's opinions of wolves were changing. Moving away from the stereotypical big bad wolf assumptions that had come before, researchers were striving to learn more about these creatures. And as part of that movement, writer Jean Craighead George traveled to Barrow, Alaska with her young son in 1971 to gather information for a Reader's Digest article. As their plane descended, they noticed a young Eskimo girl sitting alone on the tundra. George's son pointed out that the girl looked awfully young to be out there by herself. Combined with what she learned about wolves from scientists and the Eskimo people on that trip, that sighting was the inspiration for what would become the 1972 novel, Julie of the Wolves. Sure, Jean Craighead George's Reader's Digest editor rejected her original article idea, but the book she wrote instead went on to win the Newbery Medal. So I guess it all worked out. The book in question is all about Julie, a 13-year-old Eskimo girl whose short life has already been marked by stress and inconsistency. Having lost her mother at a young age, Julie, also known as Myax, learns the rugged ways of her culture from her father until her unfeeling Aunt Martha takes her in. Shortly after that, Julie's father goes missing, and in order to escape her aunt's home and try to move forward, the teen agrees to an arranged marriage that her father had suggested prior to his disappearance. When things go south there, and you'll hear way more about that in the episode, Julie escapes with big plans to find her pen pal Amy in San Francisco. Instead, Julie finds herself seeking acceptance with a pack of wolves, led by her new hero, who she dubs Amarok. Julie of the Wolves features some flashbacks to Mayax's life before the wolves, but it's told largely from the girl's perspective as she navigates the tundra alone, working hard to learn about the wolves so they will accept and take care of her. As a whole, the book is an examination of loneliness, survival, culture, and fitting in, and we're lucky enough to have writer Rose McAleese to help me talk through all of it. Rose was born on Halloween night in Seattle, where she was delivered by a doctor in a giant spider costume. This, she says, has pretty much set the tone for the rest of her life. Rose began her performance career as a spoken word artist in 2002, and adventured off into journalism from there. In 2014, she moved to Los Angeles, because she figured that what the city needed was one more writer. Rose is currently working as a screenwriter and has had the great opportunity to write for shows on BET and Complex Magazine's streaming platform. I'm so thankful to Rose for coming onto the podcast, and I can't wait for you to hear what she has to say about this book. Before we get started, please take a minute to double check that you're subscribed to the show. If you love what you hear, please consider leaving a five-star rating or review on iTunes, or sharing that you're listening on Twitter or Instagram, tagging us at SSRPod. As always, I couldn't be happier to have you as part of the SSR family, and I thank you so much for helping me spread the word. On a more serious note, I will put a trigger warning on this episode, as Rose and I do discuss the sexual assault that takes place in the book. If this is an especially sensitive subject for you, I would skip to about halfway through the episode. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Rose. Thank you so much for joining us on SSR. Hi, it's a pleasure. I'm so excited. You chose Julie of the Wolves, which I have to say was totally your idea. Because I have not thought about this book in a really long time. And I don't know why. I mean, it's won a ton of awards. I totally read it when I was younger. But I'm curious, like, why is this a book that jumped to the top of your mind when you and I started talking about you being on the podcast? I actually picked it up. I was at one of my, shout out to my old Seattle favorite bookstore, LA Bay Books. And it was on the, like, you know, Pacific Northwest, like books to read about the area. And I was like, Oh my God, I haven't read this book in years. So I picked it up. It just kind of was like, I guess there, it was like a message and it was wild to reread it. So you did read it when you were a kid. Yes. I read it the first time in fifth grade. I went to a very kind of progressive elementary school, John Muir, shout out to John Muir. We always learned about the environment. Like we had environmental studies classes. We went on like nature hikes. We planted trees every year. So it was a very like, you know, outdoors kind of inspired elementary school. So we always read books about the outdoors. So I read this book in fiss grade the first time. Miss okay. um, Lamar told us to read it. And it was, we. I actually read it. I remember being a book that I was like, I really like this book. 
I think I felt the same. So I, as listeners know, like legitimately read everything when I was a kid. <laughs> and um, Julie of the Wolves is definitely one of them. I can't remember when I read it. Mm. Um, but I th- I'm sure I was in elementary school because I remember getting it out from my elementary school library, which is like where most of my most vivid you know, memories. Yeah. Like yeah. six to 11 year old memories are just like being in my elementary school library. Um, shout out to my elementary school library and Miss Tallarico, which is like such a, such a specific name, but like, I remember it so well. Um, that's such a great librarian, like character's name. Yeah. Like that's a librarian name. Yeah. Miss Tallarico. <laughs> and she was super young and had this like super cute Bob haircut. And I just remember oh. thinking she was great. So I took Julie the Bulls out from my elementary school and it was interesting because when I started reading it again this time, I had sort of like a reaction that I I feel I probably had when I was a kid too. And I don't know if you felt this way, but like the first few pages of this book are just like all description, like really vivid description of like Julie, the protagonist, like in this very survivalist mode with wolves. And I remember as a kid, like so many books that came out in this era were very heavy on description in this way. I loved that kind of stuff when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. But as I've gotten older, I'm like not as hot on it. But I just I remember getting back into it and being like, oh, like I remember being like fascinated by all this shit, like fascinated by the fact that she was like building stuff and like taking care of herself. But it's just like such a weird disconnect now where I'm like, if I yeah. had to get this much description as an adult in a book, I'd be like, ugh. I actually felt the exact same way when I was reading it, where I was like, oh my god, this is children Hemingway. Like, why is this so thick and describing this like chunk of ice and all these like the f- wolf's fur? and things. And I feel like as a kid, I was just like adjectives, like, this is cool. This is amazing. But as an adult, I just ain't got, I ain't, I ain't got time for it anymore. You know what I mean? And I forgot like the first half of the book, she's like by herself. Yeah. Like I completely forgot, like you don't meet another person until her like flashbacks. But like the first half of the book, this girl is like a 13 year old girl, like in the middle of nowhere, kind of like being on an episode of Survivor. And it was just so crazy where I was like, this was acceptable for children? I guess so. It was wild to like reread that and hear about this like personal isolation, which as an adult and someone who I live in Los Angeles currently, which is a very like sometimes lonely, isolating city, I felt like there was a lot of metaphors where I was like, oh, this is this is very deep. And like I could really relate to what she was going through. I'm not talking to wolves or anything or like trying to stay warm in the tundra, but there was definitely those through lines of like isolation is a very interesting thing to introduce to children at a young age. And then as an adult redefining it basically. Yeah. And we talked about this briefly before we started recording, but we were chatting about how like, this is a really dark book. Yes. And I think your references to isolation really speak to that. And I wanted to mention an article that I found um, that was written on Bustle in 2014, and it was a writer who, like us, kind of had come back to this book and was writing about that experience. Interestingly, Bustle does a lot of awesome coverage of this kind of thing. Like, a lot of their writers do this kind of revisiting work. Um, But anyway, there's this awesome quote from that article that I wanted to share, which I think is a good place for you and I to start this discussion. She says, It's a visceral story of a young girl who literally runs away from home to join a wolf pack, combines a bunch of stuff kids love, from bonding with fuzzy animals to directly disobeying parental orders. But Julie of the Wolves, for all its fun-sounding wish fulfillment, is a surprisingly dark story packed with the kind of stuff that fifth graders aren't exactly equipped to deal with at such a young age or even actually remember. And she then goes on to like detail all the dark things, which I think we'll get into, but I feel like that kind of sums up what you're saying with the isolation and what you were and I were chatting about before we started recording, which is like, as a kid, you're like, oh, wolves, like she's hanging out with wolves. Like how badass is that? And then you read right? it as an adult and you're like, holy shit. This is some really dark kind of twisted thing. And I, you know, I am a huge Jean Craighead, George, she, the author, she's you know, this is like her most successful book, but she wrote kind of similar stories. But I was like, she obviously was going through something very dark and was able to package it in a children's book, which I was like, I'm going to applaud you. But that quote really just kind of like, if you don't have time to read this book, like that really summarizes all of it. But it is a very dark book, which I think is so funny when we read those type of things as children because, I mean, subconsciously we're aware of it. Like kids are way smarter than we give them credit to. So it's kind of one of those things where we 
I guess like put in the back of our heads and then forget about because we like the, I mean, she's part of a wolf pack. How cool is that? Right. It's just that thing that we know, we know the deeper meeting, but we just ignore it because we're just like, there's nothing I want to do more than like run away from home. There's no reason for me to run away from home. I just don't want to live with my parents. I want to like be a little scavenger and everything. And I also remember this kind of being, I read Hatchet, uh, that book about the plane crash. And, but I that love was like, Hatchet, love it, Hatchet. And it kind of, I forgot that Hatchet and this book are very similar. They're kind of like a male experience and a female experience. Right. So I remember like part of me actually like I just bought Hatchet and I was like, I kind of want to reread that after rereading this. Mm. But those notions of these very adult situations with kids and then allowing kids to read adult situation with children, I think is just like a really smart tactic. But I think me choosing this book says a lot. It's a dark book. I'm a little dark, I have to say. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad you did because it gives us like a ton of stuff to talk about. And like speaking to what you just said about Hatchet, like... I think when we were in elementary school, we were, I mean, I felt at least like there were a lot of books like Hatchet kind of pushed on us. Like, I'm not sure exactly what year Hatchet was published or or if it was before or after Julie of the Wolves, Mm -hmm. but I feel like these like boy survival stories were talked about a lot by my teachers and like by librarians. And maybe it was because, and this is such like a gender stereotyping thing, but there are studies that boys struggle to like enjoy reading more than girls. Like girls come to reading much younger. So I wonder if there's just this emphasis on boy survival stories in classrooms so that boys have something to read. But I read all of those and it was really cool to have Julie as sort of like a female equivalent. And like she was doing exactly what the boys did in those books. So that's really cool. Yeah. And it was just such a bizarre thing that I was like, oh my God, these books were very, and I remember I read Hatchet. I feel like Hatchet was like maybe like third or fourth grade yeah. and then coming to this book. But like, same thing. I can't remember the their timeline of releasing it. But it was very much like a strong female character, which I feel like as someone who works in like the industry and like screenwriting, I'm like, I'm so confused why this book hasn't been, I'm going to say it and then it's going to be adapted. Watch it's going to happen. <laughs> but I'm, it's one of these books that it's just so, like you said, it has so much great description and it's so great, but it's also I mean, I hope, you know, little boys read it and stuff. There's a lot of great pictures in it. There's some really cool yeah, drawings. Like wolf art. <laughs> yeah, it's very, I know. And then there's like the cabin where she, you know, spoiler alert, finds her dad again. But yeah, there is this kind of notion where there is, it is about a girl, but I definitely can see boys reading it. Yeah. But yeah, boys, I don't know what it is about them. They can't focus on that stuff for too long, I guess. I don't know. I sound so sexist, but whatever. (laughs) I think, I mean, I think it's, I think, I mean, you and I both like lived through elementary school. I didn't know a lot of boys that liked to read as much as I did. And I do think there's like stats. So if the stats say it's true, then it's not stereotyping. Exactly. And it is one of those things where it's like, yeah, it makes sense that girls, we gravitate to different worlds. We're like, how how do I like exit what's happening right now? I'm going to read a book. (laughs) Totally. And we all need that so much these days in particular. But I read in a few places that they've tried to adapt it a couple times, but like it kept falling through because of budget maybe. Oh, yes. I mean, it would have to be kind of like a revenant. It is a female revenant in the sense of like scope. It's also, I forgot... I mean, I didn't forget. I kind of knew that it was, it is a very environmentally like intense book, Mm -hmm. you know, and it talks about the, just the isolation of this beautiful landscape that unfortunately we're losing currently. So it would also be a very interesting thing to see if someone does adapt it where it would probably be on a soundstage. Like, I don't know if they could do this necessarily in the wild. And with technology, I mean, you could like, you know, do CGI wolves, but it is one of those things that like you can just, it's so theatrical in your mind when you read it. It's just this stunning, this settings and the smells and the senses that come for it. Like you feel cold when you read the book because yeah. she's surviving on this ice thing. And, and then, and of course, just like the, just the notion of you feel all these senses that are so well crafted in the book that you can't help but kind of like play director and like film the movie in your head. But 
I completely forgot about that when I reread the book where I was like, oh my God, this book is so theatrical and big and so wide and so scary. And so it's kind of bizarre to like, I mean, it makes sense budget wise to not adapt it, but then it's also like, oh God, this would be such a great like mini series or whatever. But yeah, I'm a huge fan of it. (laughs) I also think like in the same way that I read it differently as an adult, as I did when I was a kid, like I feel like when I read it as a kid, it almost was like Disney-esque in my head because you, it's like the wolves and like, you know, you're like the girl who's like singing songs about nature and it's almost like a Moana kind of thing where it's this Mm -hmm. super like strong, independent young girl who has like this kind of cool cultural background and is exploring that. But as an adult, I totally see it more as the Revenant, like you were saying. And it's so wild because I I mean, like I remember having her, her having such a huge, like culture an important thing. It plays such an important theme. Like, it, you know, the whole concept of like, who are you, especially her being like a young Eskimo woman and like how times and like technology around her is like changing her community and her people and her culture. So it's really interesting to reread it and see how relevant that idea is too. But I got the same sense where I was like, oh, this is like a cheerful, like when I was younger, like this is cheerful and cute and animated. And then now it's like, no, it's not. I completely forgot why she originally runs away. So when I got to that part, I was like, Oh my God, this is, first of all, child bride. Right. Um, she's 13 people. She is 13, 13 years old. And she she has this very sad kind of like orphan story where, you know, her dad goes missing. Dun, dun, dun. That's to be continued. Right. But she has to like stay with this like crazy aunt and uncle that she's like never met. And they're like, we don't want to deal with you. So she has to like marry a dude. And then he, I forgot about the very low key theme of toxic masculinity in this book Mm -hmm. and this idea that this girl basically runs away to get away from a sexual assault experience that of course I was like oh my god this is so topical right (laughs) I mean just the idea that she's like I have to leave this dangerous situation so I'm gonna go into the wilderness which is like safer then it's dangerous but it's like safer than my own home yeah that was wild to remember and be reminded of well her lack of options is just really Mm -hmm. sad. So, like, her father goes off in this, I think, a kayak or a canoe and, like, doesn't come back. And so, like you said, she goes to stay with her aunt who... I think the general feeling is like she's never going to be welcome there. And the weird part was that it seemed sort of like a foregone conclusion that like getting married was her next best choice. It was like her dad had kind of made the arrangement, I think, prior. Like... Yeah. Which was weird. And then the Bureau of Indian Affairs guy came and was basically like, oh, like, of course, I already have this paperwork signed. So if you want to get married, you can. And I don't I didn't have a a strong sense of like what the timing on this was. Like it was written in 1973. And I'm not sure if we're meant to believe that it's taking place in 1973. But that seemed sort of misplaced. Right. I can't see a government agency going along with that in the 70s, unless I'm completely ignorant to how things really were going in certain parts of this country just a few decades ago. I don't know. So I felt the same way. And I kind of like looked into it. And like, that was very common, especially in smaller kind of communities of like the Eskimo tribes and like cultures that kind of still have that, that still have like arranged marriage and like things, but like the idea of a child bride wasn't like, like that's not a bad thing. They were like, Oh, that's just what you do. Like you're a woman. You're only meant to like make babies and like carry on the generations. I do remember when the government agent guy came in and I was like, this is okay. This is like the part that they've maybe cut out of the movie, but like yeah. so confused by that. But I guess it was, it, it was acceptable. And then there's that whole conversation where you're like, it's part of her culture, mm-hmm. but then it's also like, can her culture come up with the times? Cause it's, it's not like, that's not acceptable. You're forcing this 13 year old girl to marry this dude. She's 13. She needs to have her own existence, her own personality, her own story basically. And here you are kind of shoving this very patriarchal view onto her, which I then forgot that this is a very like feminist book. And there's a lot of like secret notions of being like, nah, girl, you're a wolf. You got this. (laughs) Yeah. Hell yeah. I think too, like the implication was that like she would have had to stop going to school if she stayed with her aunt. Right. Like I think only the rich girls could keep going to school. And so I think in her head, she was like, oh, maybe if I get married, 
my in-laws will be able to pay for me, which again, like that's a kind of awesome feminist message where she's like, I understand that I need to get an education Mm -hmm. and I'll do what I have to do to get it. And I think like we learn this more once she's actually living with her new family. But I think when you're 13, like you don't necessarily understand what the expectations are of you when you get married. Like you see married couples and they just like, they're like kind of roommates. Like when you're 13, like you don't necessarily know that like your expectation is going to be like, you should be having sex and like, you need to be serving your husband in a very traditional way. And so even when she met Daniel, her husband for the first time, Mm -hmm. there was a line where she was like, his mother said, he'll be like a brother to you. And with those words, Julie relaxed and pushed him out of her mind. He would just be a brother. That was fine. So she's getting all these like right. weird mixed messages based on her own understanding of what it means to be a wife, like what the actual expectations are. So in her head, I can see how she's like, I need an education. I'm just going to go get a new family. I'll just be like a sister to him. It'll be yeah. fine. And you can kind of see how like a 13-year-old would think that way. And it unfortunately does not pan out the way that she might have hoped. No, it does not. And also the notion of like, you don't really hear a lot of Daniel's point of view and like basically the context of like what happens off the page for his storyline and what happens. But there is kind of this like click that happens where he, I guess, like, I don't know, like that whole that awful thing, boys will be boys, where he just kind of changes and then is like, oh, no, like I bet his father or someone like was like, okay, this is your duty. Like, this is your wife. You're supposed to have sex with her. You're supposed to like carry on the family tradition. And then he's just like, okay, I'm going to do whatever I can. Not, of course, caring and realizing that this is a human it's not just a wife or your woman. This is a human. Right. So I, I just completely forgot about that where I like, I don't know what 10 year old Rose was thinking when she read that. Maybe she just read it and was like, I don't know what that means. They got into a fight. Keep reading. Right. Get back to like the tundra. You know, <laughs> I don't want this flashback anymore. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, I don't think like, I, I agree. I don't think that in my head I was like, oh, this is more than a fight. You know, in your head, you're just like, oh, she's fighting off this guy and that's really cool that she's leaving and and that feels like kind of powerful as a kid but obviously like knowing what we know now as adults like there's so much more going on here and it's a hard thing to contend with mentally because it's like we're meant to understand that this guy Daniel has some potential like learning disabilities or there's something Mm -hmm. quite not right like they don't say exactly what it is but you know she's looking at him and she's like there's something not quite right going on behind his eyes and so then you sort of feel like he's being done a disservice as well by being thrust into a situation that he certainly can't control and you can just picture like a bunch of other dudes kind of taking advantage of his like yes issues or like the shortcomings that he has and like manipulating him that way so like both of them are kind of screwed over in this situation and it's just like toxic on all sides I know there is that sense where he's like he's kind of touched and it was a notion that she could tell and that's the thing about Julie is that she is a very smart inquisitive like she is a very self-aware for being 13 years old I mean she has a great author helping her with that but she is very self-aware but it is that thing where there is more people being taken advantage of in this situation. And Daniel is one of those. Mm. So it was, it kind of has this notion of what he did is awful. And that's not what I'm saying, but there is this other force field of, you know, people created him to kind of make this monstrous act. That is a very strange and deep theme to have in the story. And then it kind of fills over to her trying to befriend and then eventually befriending these wolves and really understanding that they are here for bare minimum Mm -hmm. food, shelter, family. That is it. Literally these people are, these animals are just trying to survive and her realizing like, Oh, I was trying to do that. I was just trying to survive before my, you know, her mother dies very young and then her dad disappears, you know, and this, this, she just, of course she found refuge in these, like what we would say were monsters, but she was running from monsters. In some ways they're both a product of their environment, which Mm -hmm. I think especially like at this point in history, potentially like they both needed more than they were getting from parents and from like 
the government and there was just yeah. there's a lot lacking where they were growing up and uh, it's a hard thing to read and to like realize that when you don't have good information and you're not being like taught properly and people aren't taking care of you in the way that you're supposed yes. to it has such dangerous consequences I want to say one more thing before we move on from this like very dark sexual assault conversation and <laughs> um, we can talk about like wolves or something else but it happens to be banned books week as you and I are recording this <gasps> Yeah. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh my god, that's so cool. Yeah. Sorry. No, I know. It's like I just realized it as we were getting ready to talk. And this book happens to be number 32 on the American Library Association's list of the 100 most frequently challenged books of the 90s. So between 1990 oh and 1999. God. Yeah. And I found online this interview that a blogger did with Jean Craighead George in 2010. So it was more of like a reflective thing. But they asked her about like how does it feel to be a banned book? And what she said was interesting and like kind of problematic, but maybe not. But I want to see what you have to say. So here's what she said. I'm delighted to be on the list of banned books. Great. Totally get that. Yeah. Awesome. I agree with you, girl. Do you? That tracks. We like that. (laughs) To think that I'm in the company of Mark Twain, the Bible, and other giants of literature is mind-blowing. What an esteemed group. Also true. I don't know why Julia of the Wolves was banned, but the critics seem to be fussing about Daniel's pushing his wife, Julie, to the floor and tearing her dress. They call it rape because they didn't read it correctly. Daniel ran outdoors saying, I can. That is, he is able to claim Julie as his wife. So Julie, who was afraid of him, leaves. I had to have an urgent reason to have an Eskimo girl run away as the Eskimos are very home and family oriented. So that's what the author said. And then the blogger is reflecting basically like, as an adult, I appreciate the rest of the story more. There is the scene between Julie and Daniel, which has been construed as rape, but which I still don't read that way. Bordering on abuse? Sure. It's enough to propel Julie out that door and into the unknown. These things happen every day. People get into Mm -hmm. fights. Women and men are abused at the hands of their significant other, and people are raped. The fear she feels when she looks at Daniel is what prompts her to begin her journey on the tundra, where she really figures out who she is and what she wants. That's what the story is about, and it's a shame that some people will miss out because of that one scene that has somehow managed to overshadow the rest of the story. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but it's it, that is very interesting because, I mean, I've probably used rape as the word, but it is that thing where here we are in the middle of uh, Dr. Ford and everything that's happening with Literally Brett. testifying today, listeners. She is testifying it's, today. Oh, my goodness. There's not all heroes wear capes. Like, she is holding her own. But yeah. it is that notion where people are like, well, it's not rape. And it's like, okay, let's stop that conversation. Sexual assault is is awful. It's a horrible thing. It is anything that you did not want, that you said no to, and you would refuse to have happen to you. So it is interesting that she's like, there was no rape in the book, but then it doesn't, that doesn't change the conversation of what Daniel did was wrong. You know what I mean? That was a sexual assault. He basically tried to claim something because just because it was your wife, that doesn't mean crap. They're children. So they're children. She is 13. I want to keep saying that. And that is so interesting. And I mean, that's the thing about this book is I feel like there's a lot of, you know, books I read or reread that I read as a kid that seem more timely, but this book definitely does seem of its time in a lot of ways. And I think it's because of conversations like that, you know, where she's like, I needed her to have a reason to leave. And it wasn't just the fact that she didn't want to be, you know, just married as a 13 year old, like that wasn't a good enough reason. She needed this assault to happen. It's so interesting for her to say and to reflect on where it's like, no, it's the stakes were already high. She's a 13 year old orphan. She is an, an arranged marriage. She doesn't want to be here. She could just leave. But she put that scene in to have a conversation, to do what we're doing now Mm. and to really dissect it and reflect on it. Yeah. She was a very interesting woman and a very interesting author. She's also a white woman who is writing these stories about Eskimos and about a community. And, you know, she lived in Alaska and she lived amongst the tribes and, you know, was a huge advocator, but it's very interesting, especially now where we are having conversations of like, who has the right to tell people's stories. And this one is one of those ones where it's like, did she have the right to tell this kind of story about an Eskimo girl? I mean, she does it very well, but it, it does spark a conversation. Yeah. And I would say just to close out again, this super fun 
not um, conversation about sexual assault. Um, <laughs> I would say, you know, to that quote that I just read, like she she's a product of a different time. You know, she her views on some of these things are much different. And she, especially eight years ago, I mean, she had that interview eight years ago. So it'd be interesting to see what she might say about that now especially yeah. given like what kids are exposed to and what parents are having to talk to their daughters about. Like, I wonder if she would feel differently. I, I don't think that it should be banned. I do think kids should get to read it, but mm-hmm. I wish that I had understood more personally as a kid, like what I was really reading, not for any other reason than I just think it's like an important lesson for kids to have this like historical context kind of, you know, it's um, absolutely because I felt kind of stupid, honestly, like revisiting it and being like, wait, did I really miss this whole thing? Yes. Oh my God. I felt the same way. I was like, I don't like, I, I don't know what happened. It just kind of glazed over. I had that notion where I was like, she ran away cause she doesn't want to be married as a 13 year old. Right. And then when the assault happens, you're like, Oh my God, what was I, as a kid, I just like, I think it's because in that time we were probably, you know, part of the lucky ones where we hadn't experienced anything like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like we hadn't had anything so traumatizing like that happen to us that we didn't know how to compute. It's kind of like, you know, trying to explain the color green to a blind person. It's like, you can't really do that unless you have the notions of being like, okay, these are the things you need to know. But it, it yeah, it was a very, I felt, I'm so glad you said it. Cause I was like, I felt so dumb. And That's I was so like, stupid. I thought I was a woke little kid, but I wasn't apparently, yeah. but <laughs> yeah. I knew I wasn't a woke little kid, but I felt like even <laughs> less woke in hindsight. While you're in Seattle, I was in like, suburban Pennsylvania with Miss Tallarico definitely not being woke no you were reading that's all that matters you'd be so surprised how many people I've met that I would like feel like are activists and like in the movement and they're I'm like when's the last book you read and they're like oh I don't really read and I'm like I do not trust you I can't trust people who don't read I'm sorry I'm saying it on the record <laughs> I hear you I like that philosophy a lot actually and so, I've met a lot of writers who don't read really that's the other thing is that, yes. isn't that like the number one rule I mean writer to writer isn't that what we're told to do like you're supposed to read more than you write if anything I mean that's like a doctor who doesn't like blood like True. how do you not read books that you, but yeah you'd be surprised especially in screenwriting how many screenwriters just don't read I'm like I can't I don't trust you get away from me <laughs> that is so interesting hmm. who knew yeah. read a book read a motherfucking book everyone do it. That's, if you make merch, it should just be SSR, read a motherfucking book. Yeah, because I just, like, need more expletives in my branding, don't you think? Like, I need... Oh, yes, yeah, absolutely. That's exactly... Band. Yeah. That, Get this podcast on the band podcast somehow. Yeah. I mean, maybe next year we'll be celebrating band podcasts week. Yeah, I'll bring you back if that happens. Absolutely. So on a much lighter note, a kind of, like, cute element of the story is that like when she runs away julie's original plan is to go find her pen pal in san francisco i know i forgot about that i knew she wrote letters but i forgot about the notion of pen pals did you have a pen pal growing up i totally did and i was trying to remember like i don't know how i got one like i i feel like and this is such like a pre-internet thing but i feel like somehow my mom found out about like some program where like your kid could get on a list and you would exchange contact information with some other random kid whose mom had gotten them on the list. Cause I had a pen pal who like I had no connection to, but that was oh, such no. a thing when we were little. Yes. Wasn't it? Did you have one? I had one for a brief amount of time. She lived in Spokane, Washington, and it was kind of a similar thing. It was through a, basically the sister school on the other side of the world. But then, you know, we lost touch. But then in high school, I had a friend, I have a lot of like, I was part of the spoken word community and I have a lot of like poet friends that live everywhere. So in high school, like the, we're such poets are so cheesy, but like we would write letters to each other. Like we kind of like brought back the pen pal thing, but it's such a lost art, man. I love it. (laughs) Well, when we were growing up too, it was such a trend with books, like to have the Mm -hmm. books that were like from pen pal to pen pal. And this was you know, written in 1973. This is well before that time because I feel like that trend was much bigger in the 80s and 90s. But I did love that there was this whole story about her pen pal who was named Amy. And the interesting thing about Amy was that Amy could not have had a different kind of life than Julie. Even before Julie left home, like I was sort of, 
amazed by the fact that Julie like seemed to crave Amy's life when at the same yeah. time she seemed to sort of be like aligning herself with everything that was opposite. And again, she's 13. So like, I get it. But Amy wrote to her these letters and was like, you'll come and you know, we'll braid your hair and you can stay mm-hmm. in the pink bedroom. And like, even the way that she met Amy, do you remember this was like so creepy where like Amy's dad was driving down the road and was like, Oh, like, Julie, you're the prettiest girl here. Like, do you want to be my daughter's pen pal? I remember that. I remember reading that and being like, oh, my stranger danger. That is the weirdest thing. Because, of course, as, like, a kid, I was probably ignored that. But then as an adult, I was like, is he Amy? Like, my immediately thought was, oh, my God, there is no Amy. There is no daughter. I hadn't thought about that. I know. I made it it into a Lana SVU episode. I'm so sorry. Wait, but no, that's, like, totally... I don't think that Gene Craighead George thought about that, but in 2018, that's... Is he catfishing her? That's what I was thinking, and I had... I remember, and then, yeah, I don't think, I don't, Jean, your sweetheart, you're great. I don't think that's what she had entailed. Right. But of course, my ass was like, oh my God, Olivia Benson is on the case. This is what is happening. But it was because, um, and then, of course, defending the book in the sense that, like, it obviously was a teenage girl, like the right. way that the her language and everything. But I remember where he's like, you should write to my daughter. And I was like, oh. He's Amy. <laughs> I hadn't even thought about that, but yeah, I mean, in our sicko 2018 minds, that's totally a thing. I know, Stranger Danger. I had like my shield up immediately, but she does have this really healthy kind of refuge and friendship with this girl who she lives in, like you said, completely different lifestyle, lives in a city, mm-hmm. lives in San Francisco, San Francisco in the 70s, how that's like, you know, romanticized. Yeah. And she was like, like a cool city girl and she was not, you know, part of that. And I always addressed it in my head when I was younger that Amy was a white girl too. Mm-hmm. And then I realized that there is no race attached to her. I just think that I did that because it, they were two polar opposite worlds. Yeah. And this notion that she's not part of a culture or a community like Julia's with like the Eskimo community. And so that was also an interesting thing, but she like, crave. I forgot the language in which she like craves this girl's existence yeah. almost. It was almost like an emotional affair in some ways and not I'm not even saying that in like an inappropriate or a sexual way mm-hmm. it just felt like she was longing for her and like I, I remember there being one line of her talking about how she was like dreaming of them like holding hands and walking down the street in San Francisco and I think part of it is like she just didn't share any kind of emotional intimacy with anyone anyone yep And at least Amy was, like, letting her in a little bit. So her plan when she ran away from Daniel was to, like, go to San Francisco, which is such, (laughs) like, you know, such a window into how young she is. Because I do think it's easy to forget that she's 13. She's in all these very adult situations. She's married. She's taking care of herself in the wilderness. You know, you think of her maybe being, like, 16, 17. But the fact that she thinks, oh, I'll just figure out how to get to San Francisco, it just kind of reveals her age in a very endearing way. She's like, I will walk there right. from Alaska. And it you're will like, be oh, fine. Sweetheart. It will yeah. be fine. It will be an adventure. Right. And then, of course, the first thing she does is she loses track of the North Star. And then she's like, I don't know where I am. And then there's a storm. And she's like, what am I thinking? Yeah. But then, of course, then it, it's funny that you say that, like, where it's like you forget her age. Because then there's scenes where she's like, oh, she's 17. Oh, nope, she's 13. Like, she is very quick to be like, you know, she has kind of a, a pity party for a hot second, you know, where she's like, I'm in this wilderness. I'm, I'm cold. I hate this. And then it's like, Nope, get your act together. We got to survive. Look at these wolves. I want to like hang out with them and be included and be part of the family, which she does, which is the coolest part of the book. I, I remember loving that as a kid and then loving it as an adult where I was like, this girl, like she speaks wolves. I forgot that there's this kind of sense of magical realism in the book where she knows how to communicate with them because she is so focused on surviving that she picks up notions and this kind of like this witchy quality of how to communicate with these animals. And it's, oh God, I forgot about that. And it was so cool. <laughs> she like basically starts paying really close attention to what all the wolves are doing and tries to like copy that, yes. like in terms of the noises that she's making and her behaviors. Um, she like learns to like show her stomach if she like yes. wants them to do one thing and all these, you know, she, I think she bites the leader 
Amarok, I think is how you pronounce mm-hmm. his name, on the chin. That's her goal because it, she watches all the other wolves doing that and it seems like that's their signal to him that they like are submissive. And so she realizes that she has to do that if she wants to be yes. accepted. And it was interesting, again, to read it like sort of out of this Disney context because as a mm-hmm. kid, I was so used to like watching movies that were about humans and animals interacting in what seemed to be a very normal, magical way. And it's been yeah. so long, like I don't consume media like that very often anymore. So to read that kind of story, it was just that it took me so out of like my comfort zone as an adult. And I, mm-hmm. I don't know that I feel like either good or bad about that. But I just think as a kid, it's much easier to like go along with that and to read that and to like buy into it. Whereas an adult, mm-hmm. you're like, oh, oh, okay. Like she's having these like familial relationships with wolves and that's great. She's figuring it out. It was just, it was such a different like context, I feel like, in which I read mm-hmm. it as an adult. Oh, absolutely. And I, I do remember like she also like, I mean, she eats, this is the where the revenant comes from. She like shows that she can like eat a dead caramel and it's like this weird weird scene that again, that very kind of, I hate to say it, but like that Hemingway language where it gets really descriptive and you're just kind of like, I felt a little queasy. I was like, Oh my God, this, I would not know how to survive. Yeah. But you know, and then she starts playing with the pups and even the way that she kind of first starts acting like a baby wolf and then kind of showing maturity and the sense that she shows to like the alpha, then her and the alpha have a very interesting relationship where he kind of becomes like a father figure in a weird way because she has to do this thing where she like earns his respect. And then he is very surprised because obviously he's as a wolf is trying to be like, this is a, this is a young girl. Like I know this is not my kind, but then kind of protects her and takes care of her. And he brings her food one day, which is like the heat. And then she's like, ah, I've broke through with these people. And then of course watching the then drama within these wolves, like there's the wolf Jello who, you know, he's like kind of the the villain in a weird way. He starts stealing food from the younger wolves and then he gets basically beat up and kicked to the curb, kicked to the curb. You, we don't learn what happens to him, but it's probably really gruesome. So it's interesting for this like 13 year old girl to kind of learn about like society and the world within this like dog eat dog kind of pack mentality. Mm. And that is such a cool notion that I feel like as a kid, I kind of like was like, Oh cool. I want to be part of a wolf pack. But then as an adult, I was like, Oh wow, this is like a really deep metaphor for kids to learn at a young age. That idea of like, when you have like a group of girls or like a group of friends, like there's going to be some hierarchy and issues and everything. And I, I thought she really executed that very well in the story. I think the other thing that she executed really well is the fact that like, as you mentioned before, for the vast majority of this book, there's no dialogue. None. <laughs> it's not as if these wolves are coming up to Julie and being like, hi, my name is Jello. Like, yeah, hi, exactly. my name is Amarok. Um, they're not revealing to her their dramas. You're not getting that kind of Disney. You know, we're no, not, there's not. no talking animals. And Julie is kind of like observing all of this happening and creating the narrative and learning what's going on. And Jean Craighead George does such like a beautiful job of illustrating that, you know, whether it's Mm -hmm. your kind of a book or not, whether as an adult, this kind of description is up my alley or not is kind of irrelevant because what she's done by creating this world, basically in the mind of one girl, is pretty freaking cool. Yes. And you, and you forget that there is, I mean, like I was saying about the whole Daniel thing, there's only one point of view in this book, Mm. but it's so expansive that you forget and you see it from different angles. And you know, there is, that's the other thing I completely forgot. There is no dialogue in this book. There's some in her flashbacks and everything, but for the most part, it is all just like narrative and internal and exposition. So it's so funny to like, be like, Oh my God, that, it, that really stripped the Disney aspect of it. When I reread it, where I was like, Oh my God, there is no talking animals, but was there, but there was so much communication, mm. you know, and that's really interesting that she was able to convey that. And you do forget, I was like, Oh my God, I, there's only one point of view, yeah. but it's an incredible point of view. I will say I missed the dialogue. I sort of got about halfway through and I was like, I would love for a little bit more conversation just because that's the kind of reader <laughs> that I am because I love yeah, like absolutely. a really great like character relationship driven book. But stepping back, I really appreciate sort of tactically what has been accomplished 
through this book mm. because it's really hard to tell a great story from one perspective. And I would say this book has done it better than almost any other book that I've read that's tried. And I, it's so interesting because I wonder if it's, I don't think kids read it nowadays. I was wondering about that because I was thinking like, does it hold up for kids now? Because I do feel mm-hmm. like it was pretty universal even when we were kids. And at that point, it would have been more than 20 years old. Yeah. I mean, hell, it was still on a banned books list in the 90s. So it was definitely still part of the conversation. But I don't, again, I don't know if it's something that's still out there. And I wonder if it, part of it is because like kids, I hate to be like kids these days, like kids today <laughs> aren't as like engaged with nature and maybe wouldn't be as interested right. in some of the description that you and I really enjoyed as kids. Like, I don't know how much of this remains interesting to a kid that like is living in such a different kind of world. Right. And it has this massive quality that I feel like, you know, she, again, she wrote this in the seventies, but the importance of the environment Mm -hmm. and our relationship to nature. And as an adult, I found that so romantic and so poetic. And as a kid, I found it as exciting and incredible because of like where we are with climate change and everything that's happening. So it's, yeah, I wonder that too, about if kids like read this and are like, I don't understand this world. And also, you know, hearing about a community like the Eskimo people where you're like, yeah, I don't, I don't know anything about this and being fully unaware of it. I mean, I really hope kids are reading it. It's a great book and it is, it is such a great book for kids because like what we were talking about earlier is that it is cinematic. Mm. There's so much descriptive. I get why as a kid, we were so enthralled by it because of how descriptive it was. And it was, you can feel the coldness. You can taste the weird queasy caribou scene. That was so, I forgot about how intense that was. (laughs) Yeah. That notion is that it is such a great book. I feel like for young kids. And I also feel like sometimes with dialogue with younger kids, that's harder to kind of like assess tone, you know? Mm. And so I've, and I've noticed that about a lot of like books that I read as a kid that don't have a lot of dialogue in them besides like, you know, like, you know, the kind of Judy Bloom, like they definitely had a lot of dialogue, but that was like, and you know, easy to sense tone in those books where I feel like this book, it really would have been hard to kind of sense when someone's like mad or aggressive or angry or finding the kind of, you know, reading between the lines within the dialogue. Something that's like just occurring to me as we're talking because it was on my mind a lot like as I was preparing for this because I was like honestly stressing out I was worried like have I paid close enough attention to what's happening with the wolves like what are the wolves doing do I understand the signals like am I going to be ready to talk about this with Rose have I like completely checked out because there were moments I have to say with all the wolf description where I kind of skimmed a little just because Mm -hmm. I knew that the other action had to be coming And so I was nervous, but it's interesting because like well over two thirds of this book, as we've been talking about, are told almost exclusively in description about the wolves. And you and I have spent very little time actually talking about the wolves, which is such a testament to what this book is really about and how much other good stuff is in here. So I just think Mm -hmm. that's worth mentioning because it's like it's easy to get caught up in a book like this. And I found myself doing this easy to get caught up in like the logistics and like the science and the nature and all that good stuff but like ultimately does it really matter maybe not and maybe not as an adult like maybe as a kid those kinds of details are more interesting and that's what you remember but as an adult it's like that's clearly not what's important here I mean that was the big thing is that you sign up for this book because you're like it's a girl who lives with wolves and like you're all about the wolves and like the wolf pack and like being basically an animal and then as an adult there's this shift that happens where you're like this is about a 13 year old girl learning about isolation which is an age you should not have to be isolated in. This is a time of personal growth and everything. So I felt the same way. And there was a lot of times where I found myself being like, Oh my God, I zoned out. Like I wasn't reading that description. But then more importantly, what happens with the wolves is their kind of relationship and since she has to try so hard to win them over her, their kind of relationship of what happens in their like climax doesn't really happen until like the last third of the book where, you know, unfortunately they kind of have, you know, their leader dies and like, you know, he gets killed unfortunately like, yeah. by humans. And, but there's this kind of thing where it seems as though she lays it out very slowly. And then at the end, it's this massive climax that happens and the wolf pack breaks up and like what that means. And, you know, they kind of like become lone wolves almost and have to scatter to the different corners of the tundra. So, yeah, it's a very weird thing that the wolves are such a heavy thing in this book, but 
as an adult, you see past that and you learn the metaphors of what the wolves are and the idea of this 13 year old girl trying to discover herself. But I felt the same way. I was like, Oh my God, please don't ask me their names. I know there's zig zat and zit. And then I know that like the alpha and jello. I know jello because he's like the mean, he's like the bad dog amongst the wolves. So, and then there was Capogen who was like the heir yes. to the wolf throne, but he, I felt like I didn't know that much about him because he was more yeah. like discussed in relation to Julie's dad, whose name was also Capuchin. So, yeah, I just didn't feel like I knew that much about the wolves. Interestingly, though, the funny thing about when I read this book was I read it the week that we brought our puppy home. <gasps> oh my god! <laughs> and so I found myself like I was like, hmm, this is interesting, like wolf behavior. Like, what am I learning about what my dog is doing? And I love that. There were moments where I was like, hmm, take note of this, like. <laughs> <laughs> what is he doing with his belly? How is right. he like snuggling his nose into your body? Things right. like that. And I was like, should I be making these weird noises <laughs> at my dog? Like what would happen? Would he respect me more? Would he know that I love him? Would he know that I'm obsessed with him? I don't know. Yes. Will he know that I'm his mother? Like, right. come on. like what do I have? Do I have to like vomit food up and then he'll eat it? Right. It, it makes you think. And it also, that's so, so funny that happened to you because it makes you think about your relationship with the idea of pets and yeah. like, I mean, my, my sister has a dog and I like look at the dog. I call the dog, uh, my niece basically. So I like look at my niece and I'm always like, you're a wolf. Like you're an animal. Like how weird that I invited this animal into my, I sound like a stoner, but it is those things where it's like, we've domesticated these animals and you see that in this book where she's like, I want to domesticate these animals. And they're like, you can't do that. And then she's like, I'm going to earn your respect. But that's so funny that this is like correlated (laughs) with your dog. Yeah. Have you done anything like that? Have you made noises? No. I mean, I was like literally reading this book as I was like (laughs) feeding my dog, like, you know, a spoonful of like organic peanut butter off of my finger. So like, I think, you know, he's doing much better than these wolves and he's certainly evolved in his own right. Bye. Um, But yeah, I was just like, wow, I feel like I'm learning so much about my dog's psychology this wolf learning about his people yeah it's like 10 week old golden retriever i'm like you a wolf are you you can't be a wolf but i guess you you are a wolf you are a wolf you're like you're a pretty wolf but like how long would you survive in this pack though like no like he's the pretty he's like the pretty boy for sure (laughs) oh my god i love that so much (laughs) yeah all in all do you feel like the experience of coming back to julie of the wolves has made you love the book all the more or has it like not held up maybe in the way that you would have expected Ooh, i've been thinking about that question i think it is definitely it's so funny because it's a definitely an adult book i'm really happy that i reread it and i'm really happy i reread it right now and like where i am in my life basically 20 years ago i read it in like fifth grade so it's really interesting to read this and then be like, man, this is a very, very adult book. I don't know if I would give it to like a fifth grader. Mm -hmm. I'd probably give it to someone like maybe in middle, like a 13 year old. Like I would definitely give it to a 13 year old and be like, yo, and especially 13 year old girls, you're going through some weird things with your body. You're going through some weird things with your friends, (laughs) learn about isolation and how to like, just be with yourself and like, you know, how to survive on your own. I don't think it aged well necessarily in my mind, just because of a lot of the themes and the, and especially the quote you just read where I'm like, Oh yeah, this, this is a, this book was written at a very different time. Yeah. But I definitely don't necessarily think it's for, I don't know, just because of how many topics that exist and how many metaphors and how many themes are in the book. I don't know if it's great for like elementary school, but middle school for sure. I think I would agree with that. I think like there were parts of it that held up for me. There were parts of it that I didn't like as much. Like I said, the description was Mm -hmm. hard for me to read. I think like I could have cut out about half of the wolf action, particularly the parts that didn't remind me of my dog. Um, (laughs) And the book would have been like just as good for me and and maybe added in a little bit more about like her relationships. Again, Mm -hmm. that's just like the kind of reader that I am. That being said, a lot of the like bigger themes that we've been talking about, sort of the non-wolf stuff, I appreciate so much more as an adult. And in that way, it really held up. And I would recommend people to read it again, especially if it's something that you remember from 
your younger years because it's just kind of a mind fuck of like this was yeah. a book that you read when you were in elementary school you were probably were not even aware of half the stuff that was going on you skimmed those parts and you're like let me get back to the wolves you know and yeah. it, it is very much in a very mature it's a very mature book I feel like that's the big takeaway of it and everything but I'm so glad that I was able to like revisit it especially now and then just seeing it and then being like this girl was a badass and a really good strong figure I feel like a lot of young kids boys and girls should read and identify with and this amazing adventure she goes on the one thing I did have like a huge takeaway from this is the forgetting about what happens with Daniel but more importantly I forgot about the ending Mm. and this like very strange kind of like I'm gonna give it away I'm sorry guys spoiler alert your dad's not dead. He yeah. has just given up on being an Eskimo and has like, I, I forgot about that. Yeah. He owns a helicopter, I think is the whole and thing. And he's a hunter. Yeah. He's a hunter. And she had just come off this like devastating situation where like Amrock, her new wolf dad had been killed yeah. by a hunter in a helicopter for sport. And like the hunter didn't even come get Amrock for like use as fur or whatever. So she was really upset about that. And then she like finds her dad and he is sort of like leaning into all of those very, to put it frankly, like white activities that have sort of like ruined her relationship with her new wolf family. Yes. And ruin her relationship with her culture and her community. He kind of abandons it. He like remarries. And, and I thought that was a very interesting way to end on the book because there's still hope, which I thought was very interesting because then Julia kind of has this thing where she's like, I'm the most adult person in my life. Like she kind of has this realization where she's like, I am surrounded by wolves and children. And she kind of has this like grown up decision where she's like, I'm going to go be the best version of myself. And I'm going to like, she embraces the Eskimo community a little more. And then is like, I just can't have a relationship with my father basically. Yeah. She really has a very massive coming to age moment, but that was like the biggest thing where I was like, Oh my God, I forgot about this ending. (laughs) Yeah. It is kind of a crazy ending and it all happens very quickly in the matter of like maybe 20 pages. It's like all this stuff happens to her. I do. I forgot there are two sequels and I don't, I can't remember if I read them, but I assume that they pick up and like Maybe there's more about the dad and what happens there. I don't know if I read them, but um, if I did, I don't remember them. It would be interesting to read those ones and then like, well, I'll text you about it and be like, girl, don't waste your time or waste your time or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, I legitimately feel like you're going to go read them. So I'll just let you tell me. I will come back to you and I'll do like a truncated like spark notes of my own basically. But I will, I I forgot that there's sequels and I would be interested um, to see what happens because the fact that she has to grow up now or that she has grown up now she just has to become older, which is the strangest thing to think about. Yeah. Like what do you do from here after you've had all of these life experiences in a very short period of time, like what happens Absolutely. to you after that? There's nothing life can throw at you. You lived on the tundra by yourself, girl. Like you're fine. You were married. <laughs> you thought you were going to go to San Francisco. Like this creepy guy set you up as a pen pal with his daughter. Yeah. You met some wolves. It, it's very complex and interesting. And I would say worth a reread for sure. Oh yeah. I have to say it is extremely dark, but in a very interesting way to read as an adult where you're like, okay, I get this. Yeah, totally. I think I very much agree with that characterization. So Mm -hmm. is there anything else that you've read recently other than Julie of the Wolves or that you're reading right now that you would recommend to listeners? It doesn't have to be YA or middle grade. Oh, okay. So I've been reading this amazing collection of uh, essays by this girl named Maeve Higgins. Okay. And it's called Maeve in America. She's an Irish girl. So she's my people. I love her. I've never laughed out loud more in a book. It's hilarious. So it's Maeve in America by Maeve um, Higgins. And she's just this like funny Irish comedian who has essays about basically race and class and the Irish community. And then she also talks about like interviewing uh, the Irish parade that happens in New York. And that's really funny because she goes to the one in Queens and there's only like 12 people and then she like talks about how she like taught a comedy class in Iraq and it's just it's yeah it's very bizarre and really great if you like essays and kind of like funny stories she has a great sense of humor um so I just finished that book and I really really loved it and then the book that I always recommend to every person it is a very thick book it is the short and tragic life of Robert Peace 
It is a book that like I devoured probably in maybe like a day. It is just this incredible tale about this guy and unfortunately our class system and race and how people kind of just fall into circumstances. And it's just a beautiful book. It's a very modern kind of like Truman Capote in Cold Blood, where there's a lot of fiction and there's it's based on a true person. And it's one of my favorite books of like the 21st century. I love it so much. Those sound like two really awesome recommendations. They also really describe me very well because they could not be more different. <laughs> it's like the scope and scale of like me as a person. <laughs> all, of the, all of the ends of the spectrum. Yes, exactly. Well, I'll include a link to both of those in the show notes for those who want to pick up a copy. I'll also include a link to Julie of the Wolves for those who have been convinced by our urging to reread it. Rose, thank you so much for being part of the show and for having this awesome conversation with me. I had so much fun chatting all things Julie with you. This was great. Thank you so much for having me. This is exciting and a great podcast and such a dope idea. Thank you for doing it. Hey, thanks. Have a good day. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hello SSRpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.